Welcome to the National Crawford Roundtable Podcast, a view of culture, current events, and politics through a biblical lens, with your hosts, Neil Boron, Bob Duco, Roger Marsh, and John Rush. Now let's join the conversation. Happy to be back with you folks for another week, another episode of the National Crawford Roundtable Podcast with Roger, Neil, John, myself, Bob Duco. Guys, how are you? Great. Doing well, Bob. Good. Thanks, Bob. Good. Always good talking with you. Looking forward to a new week. Well, the big news this week is Wednesday morning, the Supreme Court hearing oral arguments in the Mississippi case, the abortion case, uh, that is a direct challenge on Roe v. Wade because a part of Roe v. Wade says that uh, states, they may be able to regulate abortion after viability. Uh, but uh, they can't do anything pre-viability, while Mississippi's law, of course, bans abortion at about 15 weeks. Viability at this point is about 21 weeks or so, right about 21 weeks. When Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, viability was 28 weeks. So, of course, viability continues to change, we know. Uh, But then uh, Doe v. Bolton, which was the companion case to Roe v. Wade, pretty much then allowed abortion up through the rest of the nine months. And what uh, what Doe v. Bolton did was it gave this big exception for not only life but, quote, health of the mother. And health of the mother was defined by even mental or emotional health. And so, therefore, it pretty much set the stage for people to get abortions uh, through all nine months of pregnancy. But Roe allows states to regulate abortion after viability but not necessarily before viability. Mississippi, therefore, is a direct challenge on Roe v. Wade by allowing pre-viability abortions at this point at 15 weeks. And then, of course, we know the Texas law at six weeks. Now, my views on abortion, I don't think abortion ought to be legal, period. Uh, To me, life begins at, at conception. And so I'd like to see abortion banned in this nation just as slavery was banned. But bottom line, right now, we could be on the verge of seeing Roe v. Wade overturned. They're arguing this case now. The Supreme Court will come out with their decision next summer, and we'll see what have right in the middle of the midterm election season that's happening. And so we'll see, could this be the time that Roe v. Wade actually officially gets overturned? Now, I think it's important also to remind folks, there's a lot of misinformation about overturning Roe v. Wade from the Democrats from the pro-abortion crowd. Many of them on the left are patterning this as if Roe v. Wade is overturned, then women are going to go back to back alley abortions and thousands and millions of women are going to die. Well, okay, first of all, that's flat out not true. I just want to remind everybody that uh, the, the abortion industry itself prior to Roe v. Wade in 1972, the year before Roe v. Wade, there were only a total of 38 women in all of America who died from abortion complications. 38. All right, and that when you when you put that into perspective, uh, that's a really really small number. It's nowhere close to the five to ten thousand that we've been told it is every year. That's a flat out lie. That number was made up by Bernard Nathanson, who at the time ran the largest abortion clinic in the entire world. Uh, he since switched to pro-life and became a pro-life activist and got out of the business. And he admitted, I, I made up those numbers and I lied through my teeth. Okay, It wasn't true. Uh, so, But bottom line, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, all that does is send the abortion decision back to the individual states themselves to let the people through their legislators decide, do we want to be a pro-life state or a pro-abortion state? And most states in America are pro-abortion anyway. So for most women in this country, abortion laws wouldn't even change for them if Roe v. Wade were overturned. But I still think it needs to be overturned. All right, that's kind of my initial thoughts and overview on this. And I'd love to just kind of go around the table and get some thoughts from from all of the guys. And Roger, maybe if we could start with you. Roger Marsh, of course, the bottom line from the People's Republic of California. Between you and Neil, I mean, you guys are basically uh, abortion central in this country. You guys are the bookends of abortion in this nation, Mm -hmm. California and New York. But Roger, some of your thoughts on the Supreme Court and their hearing of this case this morning, Wednesday morning, which is when we're broadcasting this episode. 
Well, first and foremost, I'm glad they're hearing the case because we finally have something that is tangible in terms of, you know, what is the challenge? I mean, the challenge here in the Dobbs versus Jackson case appears to be, uh, you know, the viability issue. And, and for those who've been saying we've got to end Roe versus Wade, and I agree we should. I mean, I really honestly think first and foremost, I believe you can find quotes from none other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying, hey, the federal court really had a huge judicial overreach when the Supreme Court ruled to intersect, you know, kind of, interject themselves into the debate over whether or not states should legalize abortion. So uh, getting the federal government out of this, I think, is a good first step, first and foremost. Secondly, then there's the debate about, okay, well, what are the states going to do? And, you know, if the states can pass their own laws. I mean, we, Neil and I, were, we were just talking before the, the podcast started, how there will literally be a fight to the finish to see who, who can perform more abortions and become the abortion tourism capital of the world. Will it be California or New York? As it stands right now, California is cloaked in secrecy when it comes to the abortion industry. I mean, there are estimates that one out of every four or one out of every, every five abortions in the U.S. takes place here in the People's Republic of California, but California officials will not give up the actual numbers. I mean, they, they, they're very, very mum on this. You, even the Guttmacher Institute, which started as the PR arm of Planned Parenthood, uh, doesn't have specific numbers as to how many abortions are performed in the People's Republic of California every year. So, I mean, the, the idea that overturning Roe versus Wade would be bad on the federal level for California, California will just double down and do whatever they can. But um, I, I'm, I'm grateful to know that there is what appears to be and what should be on paper a pro-life majority, but more than that, a pro-constitution majority on the Supreme Court of the United States that where we would at least see five justices look at the constitutionality of this, look at the fact that this was passed under false pretenses and send it back to the states and say, okay, now the states make the decisions. Because I was reading last night uh, the from Guttmacher once again, they estimate that as many as 26 states would either pass or have passed legislation that would make it more difficult for a woman to get an abortion. We have to understand that going into this, the left wants total submission from the anybody else. The, the totalitarianism on the left is just ridiculous. The same people who claim tolerance and diversity and you know make your own choice and autonomy, if you try to come anywhere near them with any kind of pro-life legislation that might even suggest, hey, you know what, why don't we have uh, surgical requirements that are equal for outpatient, you know, mole removal as the same as an abortion clinic? And the abortion lobby goes nuts. What do you mean that's ridiculous? Why do we have to be, these, these horrific are going to harm women and they immediately go to and deny women health care. Instead of saying, wait a minute, no one's denying you health care. We're just saying that the abortion clinic should be under the same restrictions as the place that removed a bone spur from my heel 20 years ago. I mean, it's it's utterly ridiculous. But uh, sorry, I'm, I, I could go on. And I'll just, I'll, I, I will yield the microphone back to the other guys. But all, all of which to say, this is a huge case in terms of the states being able to make their own decisions. And I think we will see how divided the U.S. is once Roe versus Wade is overturned by the abortion laws that are or are not passed. John, what do you think? Any uh, initial thoughts? John Rush, of course, rushed, rushed to reason from Denver, Colorado. Well, and not to, uh, uh, how should I say this, not to be outdone by California or, or Neil, Colorado happens to be one of those states where without any cause, any, you know, any reason whatsoever, you can have an abortion all the way up until the day of delivery, if you'd like, in Colorado. So we're one of about, what, seven states, I believe, that that do allow that. So, uh, you know, and not, not to toot our own horn here, but uh, we're not in any better shape than the rest of the states are when it comes to that. We may not have the numbers that California has, but this is one of the states where if you want to just come get an abortion at, you know, 10 months, uh, there's a guy up in Boulder that would be happy to perform that. So it's, it's an atrocity. Uh, as a Christian employer, guys, I will tell you that this is something that uh, comes to my heart on a routine basis because we have literally killed off generations of workers in this country. We wonder why there's, you know, 11 and a half million jobs unfilled right now, why we rely on immigration to fill the jobs we have. Again, I can go on for hours like, like Roger, probably on a different venue or a different vein than Roger went down, but just all of the repercussions as a country that we've had from the abortions we have committed for the past some 50 years roughly, and we are paying for the, you know, we're paying for that today in many, many ways, and it's an atrocity and it needs to end. Yeah, that it does, that it does. Uh, Neil, some of your thoughts, uh, initial thoughts uh, as an overview on this, and then we'll take a break and then start getting into some of the nitty gritty. Oh, I got a million thoughts, and I appreciate what both Roger and John shared. I mean, everything they said 
is spot on. Bottom line is there's a lot of misinformation that flies around the abortion industry. One one example is, you know, if if abortion is supposed, quote, women's health care, you know, it's referred to that way. Roger used that term, I think. Then then why the veil of secrecy about exactly how many abortions are being performed? Shouldn't that number be celebrated in that community, you know, in the pro-abortion community? Hey, look at all the women that we provided health care to. Um, what's up with that? But beyond that is, you know, the, the fact that for so many years, women have been denied real information about what abortion actually does. Um, informed consent is a term that gets thrown around, but it rarely happens. And the number of people that have had abortions in the past that were completely denied real information about the gestation of their child and all of those things. I mean, this is a day to be celebrated, the idea that one day Roe v. Wade would potentially be overturned. It hasn't been yet. It might be. And it's it's something we pray for. But really, in many ways, uh, the fight continues because it just goes back to individual states. Abortion tourism is already a reality. It'll become a bigger reality if Roe gets overturned. Um, so our work isn't done. I mean, it would be something to be celebrated and it would be wonderful and, and certainly would cut back further on the number of abortions, which, by the way, is already in decline, I think, largely because of our understanding of what's going on inside yeah. the womb and because of sonograms yeah, and, and, and ultrasound and stuff. So we're moving yeah. in the right direction, but our work is really actually just beginning because then it becomes a state's issue. Right, so true. I'll tell you what, let's take a short break. We'll pick it up from there. More of the National Crawford Roundtable next. Be transformed by the Word of God with Alistair Begg and Truth for Life. Every weekday, Alistair Begg teaches the Bible verse by verse through in-depth attention to the Word of God. You can listen to Truth for Life on many Crawford radio stations or listen online at truthforlife.org. Please support this important ministry with your donations at truthforlife.org or by calling 888-588-7884 and be sure to let them know you heard about Truth for Life from the National Crawford Roundtable podcast. Continuing the National Crawford Roundtable podcast with myself, Bob Duco, with John Rush, Roger Marsh, Neil Boron, talking about the Mississippi abortion law and the Supreme Court on Wednesday morning which is when we're recording this episode, uh, Wednesday morning hearing oral arguments in this case that could overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, this would be extremely significant. Now, the the issue here, guys, in, in this particular debate the Supreme Court is taking has to do with viability because, as I mentioned before, the Mississippi law allows abortion pre-viability. And so if the Supreme Court upholds that, they have to undo Roe v. Wade to uphold that law. And so therefore, that would be the mechanism by which Roe v. Wade is overturned. Let's talk about the viability issue if we could because I, I'll be honest with you. I, For the life of me, I cannot understand how anybody – scientifically, medically, certainly biblically, can make a case for pre-viability abortion as though viability of the baby determines whether that baby has a right to live or not. Last time I checked, if a baby is born and the mother's holding that baby, technically that baby's not viable either, okay? I mean, that baby needs to be fed and cared for and such. If you just ignore that baby, that baby can't take care of himself. So why are we taking a baby inside the womb and saying, well, now that we've developed medical technology that we can keep that baby alive at 21 weeks, that's viability. Well, in 1973, viability was 28 weeks. What's viability going to be 20 years from now? 15 weeks, okay, so uh, the idea that viability is determined, uh, determines whether or not the baby is worthy of living or not, to me, makes no sense. But there's another issue about viability I want to throw out on the table, and I just want to give everybody listening to us some basic numbers. I want to tell everybody what is going on, what the stage of development is of a pre-viability baby, all right? Uh, first of all, Within 10 days after fertilization, the early placental blood circulation has begun. By 12 days, the baby's hormones are starting to be produced. By 14 days, the primitive streak, the beginning stages of the central nervous system, develops. By 18 to 21 days, you have a heartbeat. By four weeks, the head starts to take shape. At five weeks, you can see arms, legs, toes, fingers, and even fingerprints. At six weeks, you see two eyes. At seven weeks, pain sensors appear. At eight weeks, the brain is forming and eyelids appear. 
At 10 weeks, the baby sucks his thumb, squints to close out light, frowns, swallows, and moves his tongue. At 13 weeks, you can see bones and fingernails. At 16 weeks, the baby can grasp with his hand. At 18 weeks, he blinks and moves his mouth. At 20 weeks, he can hear and recognize his mother's voice. Yet at this point, this baby is still considered, quote, pre-viability, and therefore not a human being or a person worthy of protection and rights and a right to life. Uh, To me, this viability argument is nonsense. This is a human being made in the image and likeness of God from the moment of conception. The only thing left to do at this point is the growth, development, and taking shape of this baby. But life is life, period. So that's kind of my take on that. I'd love to get some of your thoughts on on this. And Neil, maybe if we could start with you. Your thoughts on the viability argument. Is there any kind of case to make to say that viability should be some big pivot point to justify versus not justify abortion? Not in the least. And by the way, my wife worked for years as a pediatric nurse, then as an OBGYN nurse. And today she is a staff member at a pro-life pregnancy center that does ethical medical um, treatment for women who are thinking about getting an abortion. They don't provide for abortions. They don't refer for abortions. But they do some of the other things like STD testing. They do pregnancy tests. Uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but only about uh, but one in one out of every four abortions are not even viable. So sometimes women literally think they're pregnant, go to get an abortion, and places like Planned Parenthood will provide the abortion when they actually weren't even carrying a viable child in the first place. So I mean, there's all kinds of ethical questions that float around in that. But the reality is, medical science has taken us further back towards you know the actual moment of conception to say. This, this is a human being that we're looking at here. And it's undeniable when women see the ultrasound image of their baby, um, just a, a, the amazing reaction they get. Some of them, like you were saying, Bob, finding out that the heart is beating at such an early age. Yeah, 18 um, to know, 21 days. 18 to 21 days, you're hearing a beating heart, and they can hear that. I mean, it's, it's, it's unreal what that does. So it isn't like that there's a whole bunch of people in the world that want to kill their babies. In fact, most women just feel that the need to take the life of their baby so that they can finish school or, you know, they're under pressure from a boyfriend or someone else. Um, those kind of things have a tremendous impact on them. But no, vi- the, quote, the idea of viability is ridiculous. I mean, in the sense that um, do we consider somebody who's in a coma to be unviable or somebody who's elderly, uh, who's gotten to the stage of, of you know total dependence upon others for care, that that person's no longer a viable human being? Should we just extinguish their life because they're inconvenient to us? And, and one verse, honestly, or two verses really that come to mind out of Romans 1, you know, it's just kind of referring to the sinful heart of man um, here, but it says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. I think what we see in America right now, and we have for the last almost 50 years, is an embracing of the idea that we can be like God. We are God. It's really the lie of the garden, you know, being played out in the 21st century. Um, But thankfully, truth prevails. And I think that the veil is beginning to be lifted on some of these things as we begin to understand the importance of what's going on biologically and otherwise in terms of viability. Yeah. Uh, John, any thoughts you have on the viability argument that so many tend to use? Well, it's interesting you say that. Roger uh, put me together with uh, Hannah. Uh, she's, I'm going to interview her today. I know Roger already has. And Hannah was, uh, I believe, uh, the first test tube baby that was adopted. So this was from a frozen embryo. So we talk about viability. So Hannah, Anna, who is Hannah, who's an adult today, and actually part of her story or her brief, if you would, is being read today in what we're talking about in this particular Supreme Court case. So it's also very important on that end of it because it shows the viability in what you guys are even talking about right now. She is an adult today. Uh, She won't speak in front of the Supreme Court, but what she's written in her story will be read and given to the Supreme Court to show the viability that can come uh, literally at the time of, of conception. So her, her embryo from just a, 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 you know, a few hours old, I believe, was frozen. Roger, you know more of the story than I because you've interviewed her, but literally she is a testament to how viable a, a, you know, two cells coming together are, guys. 
Yeah, it's wow. one of those cases. It's one of those cases where, um, when you think about what the left, you know, espouses in terms of being able to do whatever they want and manipulate science, there have been hundreds of thousands of frozen embryos that uh, people have, you know, constructed, you know, for IVF later, you know, where they could just implant back into the womb. And when the families give birth to the children that they have, or the ones that you know actually survive that whole process, there are hundreds of thousands of frozen embryos that are still been just hanging around. And uh, John and Marlene, uh, Hannah's parents. Uh, were not able to have children and so they contacted an attorney and said well what about one of these frozen embryos and they were the first family to actually adopt they had to legally create the law right. to adopt a frozen embryo and implant the child and so uh, they've testified before Congress before on the viability issue because you know Hannah is a she's a bright thriving young woman graduated from Christian College and is in grad school right now and uh, filed an amicus brief that said you want to talk about viability I, you know I'll be happy to sit in front of you and show you what human viability looks like I mean viability begins at conception and so if you're trying to challenge a 15-week ban or a 20-week ban or whatever um, viability begins at conception because I'm here you know, I mean, there, there's the there's the potential for that, and and this is something the left hates because they love to construct life on their own. You know, I mean, this famous celebrity takes a frozen embryo from somebody else and hires a surrogate and you know plays mad scientist with it, but mm -hmm. when it stares you right in the face and it's not a Kardashian, you know, who's giving birth or something like that, it's just. John and Marlene, you know, simple Lutheran church-going family. Uh, all of a sudden, it's like, well, no, wait a minute. That that doesn't fit our narrative. And I think back to Neil's point, the uh, uh, shocking to hear the number of abortion procedures that are performed on women who were unfortunately headed for a miscarriage or a stillbirth, and they didn't need to go through the horror and the trauma of thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to go ahead and eliminate this thing and, and end the pregnancy. There's only one way you end a pregnancy, and that's with a birth. You know, I mean, that's right. that right. full stop. So you can manipulate the language all you want, but the fact that we're even having this conversation and the left is so nervous, of course they're nervous because they have been taught to believe that this is a woman's whole basis for existence. You know, this is your unalienable right is to be able to control your body. And the idea that it's your body and this child is an extension of your body, that's where we're going to agree to disagree until Jesus comes and sets the record straight. Right, it's so true. Tell you what, short break, we'll pick it up from there. Next, a lot more we're going to discuss in this, folks. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about abortion. What was what would God's view be on this? Uh, also, what about the question of rape and incest? Should there be exceptions for rape and incest? And what will the Supreme Court do in this case? What would the implications be if Roe v. Wade is overturned? And will they overturn it? Uh, we'll talk about that as well. So a lot more as we continue this National Crawford Roundtable podcast. Dr. James Dobson left a successful career in academia to preserve and promote the biblical family in America. The radio broadcasting ministry of Dr. Dobson spans over four decades, earning him 17 honorary doctorate degrees and an induction into the National Radio Hall of Fame. Today, Dr. Dobson continues to champion marriage and parenthood through Family Talk. Listen every weekday at drjamesdobson.org and be sure to reference the National Crawford Roundtable podcast when asked how you listen to Family Talk. Continue in the National Crawford Roundtable podcast with Roger and Neil and John and myself, Bob Duco, talking about the Supreme Court uh, hearing arguments in the Mississippi abortion case, banning abortion after 15 weeks. And uh, guys, let's talk about a little, uh, a little bit about God's perspective on this. You know, if we go to Scripture and try to determine what God would think about abortion— to me, this is overwhelmingly clear. We it's see, cut and dried, Bob. It's easy. It, it is. I mean, <laughs> my goodness. All through Scripture, I mean, I, I spend the next hour just giving verse after verse after verse from Job 31, Psalm 22, Psalm 139, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 46, all the places where where God is making it clear. He sees no distinction between the between a human being born and not born, inside the womb, you are you in the eyes of God very clearly. Uh, last time I checked, John the Baptist, when he was leaping in his mother's womb, okay, was not just fetal tissue. This is a human being. Uh, so to me, this is overwhelmingly clear. But but one of the things I want to throw out on the table, and I'd love to get you guys' take on this, is uh, I, I was one of the debates that I had on my show was with a guy who wrote, from a Christian biblical perspective, a pro-abortion case, and it was called, uh, what was it? oh boy, what was it? Uh, abortion is biblical. That's what it was. Abortion. I, I think is the biblical. title should have been "I'm an idiot." <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so him and I, you know, we had this debate on the show. Okay, 
And uh, he actually tried to play the Exodus 21 card. And I'm thinking, you have to be kidding me. Uh, Exodus 21 is about as clear as it gets that God does not sanction abortion. Exodus 21, for listeners who may not be aware, it says in verse 22, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no lasting harm or serious injury, talking about to the baby, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the courts allow. But if there is serious injury, again, to the baby, then you are to take life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So everybody's heard the phrase eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but very few people know the context of that is God's punishment on someone who causes injury to an unborn baby. Uh, But this guy I was debating was trying to claim that the woman gave birth to a stillborn baby and that God didn't care. The baby was born dead, so God didn't care what happened to the baby. It was all about if there's injury to the mother, and which is absurd. And of course, I had to play the, the original Hebrew. The Hebrew word used there for baby is yelled. It's used 89 times in the Old Testament. All 89 times, it's a living baby. Uh, the Hebrew word for a stillborn uh, baby uh, or miscarriage, nephel, shakol, those weren't used. Yelled was used. And the guy was like, oh, rutro, didn't think you'd know Hebrew. Okay. And so his entire argument collapsed. But it just, it seems to me, and maybe... Uh, Roger, if I could start with you on this, as a pastor, and I know we got to go to, I, I know we got to go to. I'll tell you what, let's do this. We're coming up on the bottom of the hour because I want to get everybody's take on this and, and scripturally how we should view the issue of abortion. But we are coming up on the bottom of the hour, so I'll tell you what we do, everybody. Listen to the second half of this National Crawford Roundtable podcast. You can listen to it online. If uh, your local radio station doesn't play the second half, you can listen to it online. You can go to CrawfordMediaGroup.net, or you can listen to the second half on Stitcher, uh, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, So listen to the second half. We're going to dive into that and a whole lot of other issues and questions like the rape and incest question and many more in the second half of this National Crawford Roundtable coming up next. has been a Crawford Broadcasting production. Continuing the second half of the National Crawford Roundtable podcast with John Rush, Roger Marsh, Neil Boron, myself, Bob Duco. Uh, we're talking about abortion, the possibility of overturning Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court with the Mississippi law. Uh, addressing right now, guys, God's perspective on abortion. And Roger, like I say, we start with you. You're a pastor. Neil's a pastor. But Roger, let me ask you, as a, a pastor, I don't know how anyone could try to make a biblical case for abortion, but there are those that do. I know I've debated them on my show, but it seems to me scripture is pretty clear about this. God doesn't create a distinction in humanity, pre-birth versus post-birth. You are you from the moment of conception. Yeah, you certainly are. And you know, the idea that we can do anything, it's the same when it comes to issues, say, with homosexuality and, and, and uh, the LGBTQ argument that so many left-leaning Christians will try to make. They'll try to take an, a verse or two about the love of God and say, well, that applies to everyone, and then throw in some Old Testament about, well, those were about the prostitutes and the shrine. It had nothing to do with, you know, regular people having, you know, uh, decent, loving relationships, etc. And it is interesting to me when I hear about people who are using trying to use scripture to defend abortion I, there's a i think there's a big difference between someone who goes to an abortion clinic and says can i pray with you can i you know can i 
what can I do to help you? I, I love the organization 40 Days for Life and the way they approach this because it isn't scary, it isn't screaming, it isn't yelling. It's, it's rather just lovingly coming alongside because in many cases when a woman is considering an abortion or maybe a family are considering whether or not to abort a child, it seems like the, the, the first question we should be asking them is how are you feeling? How are you, how are you right now? I mean, what, what's your mental state? What's your emotional state? Because the, the arguments that are used so often, well, you know, it's an inconvenience, it's a major financial hassle, et cetera, et cetera, could pretty easily be diffused. But when it comes to the church trying to come up with some kind of biblical explanation for it or someone coming to the church, um, there, there really is none. Now, one thing I think that the church can do a much better job is in dealing with post-abortive women who mm -hmm. find themselves in the church and, uh, and, and find themselves ostracized. They're, they're afraid to talk about the fact that, hey, when I was younger, I had an abortion. And, you know, it, it's, it can be shocking to be in the presence of, you know, somebody who actually went down that route. But I'm always intrigued. Say, hey, you know, what, what, what's it like? How do you feel? What, what, what did you experience back then? Knowing now what you didn't know then what kind of decision would you make? You know, these are these are all questions that can be asked, and I think very lovingly and very compassionately. Because, you know, when you think about the way Jesus treated the rank-and-file sinner compared to the Pharisee, can we be tougher on people in the clergy who are, I was reading about a, a gal who's a, a pastor at a church in Austin, Texas, who preaches on abortion at least once a month. You know, she's very, very pro-abortion and says, you know, because it's about pro-women and Jesus was about elevating women. And so if you don't have abortion in your arsenal, you can't really be a woman. Uh, that was her argument. And I thought, well, Jesus would have no time for that woman. He'd just come right after her in a pharisaical sense. But but when somebody comes to you and says, gosh, you know, either I'm thinking of doing this or I did this, it's a perfect opportunity for us to be Jesus and ask questions like, why are you hiding? You know, I mean, what's, what's really beyond, behind what's going on here? Uh, what are the long-term ramifications? Because you're thinking in that moment, and Neil, I'm sure you can address this a little more closely, uh, what someone is making a decision. They're making a short-term, myopic, right-in-that-moment decision that has mm -hmm. eternal ramifications. And, uh, and, and a lot of people don't even realize that that's what they're doing in that moment. Yeah, your thoughts, Neil. Well, the number of women in that moment that are being pressured into a decision and who feel tormented about the decision that they feel like they're having to make is unbelievable. Um, often coercion is involved in that decision. You know, we think that a woman ought to have the right to choose, but sometimes she's hearing from a boyfriend, sometimes even a, a husband or a pastor. Some women have been counseled by clergy to have an abortion because you know, it's uh, maybe maybe it's uh, let's say somebody who's working as a children's ministry director, and she's not married, but she gets pregnant, and it's going to bring quote shame on the church. Some people have been told by by members of the clergy, "Hey, listen, let's just take care of it because we don't want to harm the name of God." And what incredible damage that does to her, um, and of course the baby. Um, but you know. I, I had a woman call my show one time who said, and I might have even mentioned this on a prior broadcast, two different stories, real quick. W one was a woman who said that she had had an abortion 50 years earlier. Now, this was a phone call that came in somewhere around, you know, 2010-ish, but um, she was referring back to even before it was legal in New York State. It was some type of, of doctor she found somewhere to do a, quote, back alley abortion, although she was in a doctor's office, but lived with the shame and guilt for 50 years. And she was a, a believer, but didn't literally didn't know that she could be forgiven by God for that sin that she felt was just too dark, you know, too horrible to bring to the light. Uh, what is grace about, by the way? And, you know, we talk about the term fall from grace. I, I think a more accurate term is fall into grace. Well, we need grace because we're broken, we're sinners, uh, we're weak and we're frail, and we need, we need the unconditional love of God. It's available to any who've sinned. And so uh, we need to always stress that, and I'm glad you brought that up, Bob, or whoever did, about the importance of dealing with women who've had past abortions because God Roger loves did. them and can free them. Yeah, thank you, Roger. You know the other what? thing. Yeah, go ahead. Um, no, go ahead, just real quick. But I'll come back to it in a minute. Go ahead, Bob. No, I, I, I was just I, – I think that's such an important point. And I wanted to get John in on this too because uh, it occurs to me that as we're talking about abortion and the lies of the abortion industry and Planned Parenthood, we hammer this issue hard. Uh, there's women listening to us right now who have made that awful and, and wrong decision and they've had an abortion. And now they're dealing, mm -hmm. John, with, with, yeah. with the guilt – of yeah. this and 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 I, just a quick anecdote. I I had a lady call into my show one time and she was crying. She had an abortion. She had an abortion like 10, 15 years prior. I can't remember, but she was crying and and because she's just so overcome with 
with guilt from this. And and uh, I remember asking her, well, you're a believer in Christ. Have you gone to the Lord and repented? And, and she says, yeah. She says, I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Mm-hmm. And, and John, I remember saying to her, and I know this is going to sound very harsh. Roger and, and Neil will probably say it's not very pastoral. But I remember saying, almost kind of rebuking her. And I said, let me ask you something. I said, are your standards really higher than God's? And she was taken aback, and she says, well, no. And I said, well, if you know that God forgives you, but you can't forgive yourself, you're saying your standards are higher than God's, and I don't think that that's a God-honoring position to have. You need to forgive yourself mm-hmm. in the same way that God has forgiven you. Amen. And she's like, oh, you know, you're so right, and whatever. Uh, but the truth is, John, there are a lot of women that are dealing with massive Guilt uh, and men, uh, and kind of, yeah, and men, and men too. I've had and men call in my show a lot, you know, not exactly the same story <laughs> you just told, Bob, but I've had men call in my show where we've had this topic and we've been discussing things. I've had many, uh, you know, Caring Pregnancy Center on in the past as, you know, not only sponsors, but just guests and so on. And, and I've had men call in, uh, you know, older men, men that are in their 60s, late 60s, early 70s, you know, having the same conversation you had with her only on the male side of the fence. So yeah, I think all of us have, as, as hosts probably, have experienced that on more than one occasion. I, yeah. I just talked to a guy recently about that very thing, that he was carrying the guilt and shame of coercing his, at the time, girlfriend, today his wife, uh, to end the pregnancy. By the way, both of them work in a pregnancy care center now mm-hmm. um, in an area not far from Toronto, Ontario. But um, incredible story and testimony. But, you know, he carried the guilt and shame. Now, he might be in the minority in terms of the, the, the vast majority of men. You know, abortion really actually is not a great help to women. It's the greatest help to men who want to live promiscuously. It's like the greatest thing ever because bottom line is you just can walk away and it's on the woman to abort the child because you're out of her life and it's freed men from any sense of responsibility of caring for kids. I mean, it's tragic what's happened in that sense. And women who've been through abortion and ended up going to the clinic by themselves and paying for the abortion by themselves are well aware of what I'm talking about. The other thing I was going to share real quick before, uh, Bob, was the uh, story of a woman who called in. A broken, crying. She was a believer. Her husband was a believer. They were active in their church. They had two kids. And he had said when they got married, I only want two kids. That's it. I'm not having any more. So when she got pregnant again, he was blaming her. You know, you should have used something, whatever he was saying there. And I am not having another child. So it's that child or me. A Christian mm-hmm. wow. leader in the church mm-hmm. saying, you either abort or I'm out. And I mm-hmm. try just anybody try to imagine what a woman's going through in that moment Uh, and again to underscore the reality i believe that the vast majority of women who've had abortions are under some form of coercion like the average woman doesn't say oh i'm pregnant even if she's a teenager you know 17 years old there's a maternal instinct that god placed in women oh oh i can't wait to go abort this child this would be the greatest thing i could do today i think they, they they're caught in a quandary in a turmoil saying wait a minute i've got a this is my child i'm carrying right now what am I supposed to do? And because of pressure from parents or others or boyfriends, uh, they feel like it's their only option. Certainly isn't. That's so true. I'll tell you a short break. We'll pick it up from there next here on the National Crawford Roundtable. Learn how to walk the narrow path with Steve Gregg. With over 40 years of studying the Bible, Steve Gregg is passionate about teaching you how to apply scriptural wisdom to every aspect of your life. Listen to The Narrow Path on many Crawford radio stations or online at thenarrowpath.com. The Narrow Path is 100% listener supported. Please keep this vital ministry going with your generous financial support and let them know you heard about The Narrow Path on the National Crawford Roundtable podcast. Continuing this National Crawford Roundtable podcast with Neil Boron, Neil Boron Live from Buffalo, New York, John Rush, Rush to Reason from Denver, Colorado, Roger Marsh of The Bottom Line from the People's Republic of California, myself, Bob Duco out of Detroit, We're talking about all things abortion, Roe v. Wade, with this week the Supreme Court hearing arguments in the Mississippi abortion case. It could set the stage for Roe v. Wade to be overturned. All right, guys, we've been talking about God's but, perspective. Bob, real quick, on I, I want to throw yes. one more thing in, real quick. Yes, because this, this does go along with Bob's or with with God's perspective, and and by the way, Bob, Neil, and Roger's perspective, I believe as well. And that is that this is my my feeling. I think you guys would agree. What abortion has done. Over all of these years, and and when I said earlier that we as a nation are reaping what we've sown in that area, is we have devalued life. Every abortion devalues life to the point where people no longer value it the way they once did, the way God wants us to value life. 
And in turn, we wonder why there's mass shootings and all these other things that go on on a regular basis. Guys, I know there's a lot of folks out there on the other side that would disagree disagree with me on this, but I can tell you right now, that has come from the abortion side of things and the way that we as a nation value or devalue life. We are we are reaping what we've sown all these years. Yeah, that's such a great – you know, it's a very, very good point. And by the way, uh, you know, I'm really into the creation-evolution debate. Frankly, I believe that evolutionary theory uh, has played into the devaluing of agree. life as well. I agree. Uh, if we're nothing more than evolving Slob, blobs of tissue. We're just slime. That's right. Yeah, exactly. We're evolving blobs of tissue that are no different than animals as part of an evolutionary process. Why should we value life? And, of course, byproducts are going to be – the abortion that we see and the devastation that's that's uh, reaped not only on these these babies, uh, but the women as well. Let's uh, let's address head on and honestly the rape and incest question because we are very often uh, put on the defensive when it comes to the issue of rape and incest. We all know rape and incest accounts for one percent, if that, of all abortions in the country. So anytime somebody plays the rape and incest card with me, I think to myself, okay, well, can we then at least agree on the other 99% before we start talking about abortion uh, through rape and incest? And then say, well, no, of course not. Well, then then why are you playing the 1% card when we got the 99% elephant card in the room? But uh, that doesn't mean we dodge this issue of rape and incest. There are many who believe that there must be exceptions for rape and incest. And I'm just going to say, with all due respect, I am not one of them. I just don't believe you can execute an unborn baby because of the crimes and sins of his biological father. Uh, Not to mention the fact that the woman uh, who gets that abortion uh, through uh, after a rape and incest, we're now basically taking a traumatic, horrific evil that was done to her, and we're compounding that with the potential guilt and everything else she's going to have to deal with emotionally for the rest of her life on top of it. Uh, Nobody says she has to raise that baby. Uh, If she doesn't want to, the baby can be put up for adoption. But to me, I, I don't think we can make exceptions for rape and incest. We must allow that child to live. And and if the woman doesn't want to raise the child, wants to put the baby up for adoption, you know, that's fine. And the rest of us need to love that woman, care for that woman, crisis pregnancy centers to help her, pray for her, all of that. But the answer is not to uh, commit two evils right. to try to mask the first evil that was done. That's kind of my take on that. But I know some people consider that a radical position to say no abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. Let's go around the table. How do you guys handle that issue? Anybody wants to grab it first? I'll jump I, in. Just oh. Yeah, Neil. No, Neil, take okay. it. Um, let me just say from my heart <laughs> that one of the problems I have with talking about an issue like this, and it certainly needs to be discussed, and I appreciate you bringing it up, Bob. Thank you, because um, this is a major question, and, and it, you know, it's part of the debate. Um, but it's, it's often presented like, um, should we allow it legally, you know, and obviously that question has to be debated. It has to be looked at. And and what if a woman wants to get an abortion? Should she be allowed to? You know, it's always the kind of, it, there's a harshness to that reality. I, I think, first of all, this woman has experienced a tremendous trauma. I've known people, even members of my extended family that have been raped. And I mean, the, the, the damage that it inflicts emotionally, spiritually, and otherwise you know, sometimes these guys, these, these women are, are raped by guys that claim to be Christians, like, you know, at parties or whatever. I mean, things happen. My point is, these women have experienced a tremendous trauma. I think we need to understand that when they're making their decision. Because let me say on the other side, it's possible as many as 50% of the people listening to this podcast right now have experienced divorce. Does God hate divorce? Yes, he does. But he absolutely loves the people who end up getting divorced. And I think his heart is as broken as anybody else's heart. So here's this woman, she's pregnant uh, as a result of a rape, dealing with this trauma, and for whatever reason can only see relief as the thing to be desired. And so feeling like I just got to get this baby out of my body because it came from this horrible situation, and, uh, and I want relief. I think Jesus is not looking at her like, you better do the right thing, lady, because because I have laws and rules that apply to this. I, I really actually see Jesus looking at that situation with a broken heart, understanding where she's coming from. Does he want her to abort? No, uh, as, as much as he wouldn't want uh, someone to get divorced. 
but God's grace is always sufficient. And so I am totally against the idea of abortion, even in the case of rape or incest. But I also want to say it with a grace-filled heart, knowing that some women will choose that. And there is, if, if they're sinning in the eyes of God, and I believe that they are, that God's grace is fully available for them as well. And when they come to their senses and when they're able to process it, they'll be able to see it more clearly. But my prayer would be that they would choose life in the first place, because I think that's what God desires. Sure. Uh Roger, you're a pastor as well. Your take on the the rape and incest exception question. Well, it used to be one of those things where I think it was kind of a safety valve, you know, to say, okay, we want to pass pro-life legislation, but we'll put the exemption in because, you know, what about those women and we want to be compassionate. When you look at the numbers, and Bob, the numbers you cited are echoed by the Guttmacher Institute. So for crying out loud, even Planned Parenthood acknowledges that this is not that big a deal. When you see, and we get a lot of lefty uh, legislators out here in the People's Republic of California saying, well, we can't have parental consent notification because, you know, those teenage girls and the 13 and 14-year-olds have to have access to abortion because they were probably, you know, it was conceived by rape or incest. And so we, 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 we don't want to make things worse for them. Well, we, we all know that's a bunch of bunk. It's the, you know, back alley abortion issue that was being raised back in 72 and 73 when Roe versus Wade was being passed. But to Neil's point and to amplify that, you know, even more, that there's a way we can go about this compassionately as opposed to, you know, and, and just from the heart of Jesus, what would just ask the question like the old uh, wristband used to say, you know, 20, 30 years ago, WWJD. You know, what would Jesus do in a situation like this? When you greet somebody at a a pregnancy resource center or an abortion clinic and ask them the questions, when you look at the way the pro-life community has stepped up majorly in terms of providing the things that are necessary, okay, if we are encouraging you to not end the life of your child in the womb, then what does your life look like after saying, okay, I'm going to choose life for my baby. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what, what resources are necessary from health care to education to housing to adoption? I mean, how many women who get in a, a crisis pregnancy situation don't know that adoption is an option? We were talking about our, every one of us having kind of a horror story, either with a listener or a friend, I want, uh, with regard to abortion. Um, I used to work uh, for a nonprofit ministry uh, producing a radio program, and the guy who was our engineer, uh, his wife, uh, her mom and younger sister were very passionate in the pro-life community and finally asked him one day why they were so passionate and it turns out his father-in-law used to be a pastor and they had three children and mom got pregnant with a fourth and the elders of the church told him they would not raise his pay to cover the cost of the he wouldn't pay him a lot they said you're not going to be able to afford this child we recommend you abort and they attempted an abortion and his uh and the the his wife's sister survived the abortion and as, using that great phrase, I love it from the parable of the prodigal son uh, that Neil just used, <clears throat> when they came to their senses and realized now they're right. very passionate pro-life advocates. And I think that's what it is. I mean, there has to be a desensitization that goes on that says, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this procedure and no harm, no foul. My life is going to go on the way it is. But deep down, you know, buried deep inside your heart, we all know that there's something greater here. So to us in the body of Christ who are saying, please don't kill your child, then we have to be able to go the extra mile and say, okay, well, now what's next? You know, what, what kind, maybe you already did or you've had an abortion in the past and you're going to keep this child and you, there's psychological wounding that goes on. But we have to do it in a way that's compassionate because you take into consideration and give the benefit of the doubt that any woman who has an abortion doesn't know what she's doing. You know, and if we can pray the prayer, pray the prayer of Jesus on the cross, you know, Father, forgive her. She didn't know what she was doing at the time. How do we compassionately love that person and show mm-hmm. the love of Christ in that way? And so, and so I, I'm with Neil. I've, I've gr- grown to be a no exceptions, no exemptions guy, but simply just because the numbers don't bear it out and it, it d- kind of deflects the argument uh, from what's really happening here. A lot of people on the left who support abortion think it's a women's rights issue and they don't realize that there are two or more human lives at stake that are going to be uh, indelibly altered and, right. and, are going, yeah. and they're going to be walking with a limp the rest of their lives. We have to be ready to help that out. That's a very Amen. good point. I'll tell you what, John, I want to get your take on rape and incest, how you view that. Uh, let's take a short break, and we'll pick it up from there next year on the National Crawford Roundtable Podcast. Dr. Michael Yusuf leads the way for people living in spiritual darkness to discover the light of Jesus Christ. This tremendous outreach begins with the proclamation of God's Word through the uncompromising biblical teaching of Dr. Michael Yusuf. Leading the Way is here to equip and strengthen the church to stand strong and to advance the gospel in today's ever-changing world. 
Listen to Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Yusuf at ltw.org slash listen, and be sure to mention you heard about their program on the National Crawford Roundtable Podcast. Kind of winding down this National Crawford Roundtable Podcast uh, with John and Roger and Neil and myself, Bob. We're talking about abortion, Roe v. Wade potentially being overturned. We'll see. Uh, We've been addressing the very tough issue of rape and incest, and John, John Rush, of course, Rush to Reason out of Denver, Colorado. Uh, your take on the rape and incest exception argument that very often puts a lot of pro-lifers on the defensive. I refuse to be put on the defensive on that. We, we cannot Agreed. justify rape and incest. And, and I can't really add anything to what Roger and Neil said. Guys, you, you did a great job. And, and, and I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm not odd man out here. I believe everything you guys have said. I feel the same way. Life is life. It doesn't matter how it was formed. I'm also a a firm believer that, and I know this is a hard one to explain, and maybe we can get into this at a later podcast, but I do believe every every conception is a miracle in and of itself. Why does God allow those particular, you know, conceptions in those particular situations? I don't know. I'm not him. I can't answer for him, but I do know that when you look at what it takes— to even have a pregnancy happen in the first place and the miracle that happens there. Uh, I'm just somebody that I don't want to end a miracle, I guess is the way I would I would look at it. And that's how I would explain it to somebody, even in the case of, of rape and incest. But guys, I do want to talk about probably a big elephant in the room here. And it's near and dear to me because I really feel like, and this is where the pastors in the in the conversation need to jump back in, but guys, this is another area that the church has failed drastically in, and in my opinion, has even forced some of these abortions. You guys have even talked about some of these things that have happened inside the church, and what I mean by that is, because of the church and the guilt they used to put, and still in a lot of cases, put on unwed mothers, and because of that guilt, the things that happen to those unwed mothers, because of the way the church handles it in the first place, no offense, guys, the church has a lot of blame here. Preach it. Yeah. Uh, let me just jump in for a second because you're totally singing my tune right here. I, I'm I'm with you, and I'm, I don't say this um, to be, that's what I'm looking for, judgmental towards anybody. It's just a fact. I mean, we need to look at the log that's in our own eye at times rather than just the speck that's in other people's eyes. I don't think Jesus was just talking to the Pharisees about stuff like that. He was talking to his followers, believers, those who said they knew and loved him. He wanted us to be self-aware as much as anything. And like, how has our treatment of women faced with an unexpected pregnancy, unplanned pregnancy, really actually been over the years? What Do we actually know what's going on behind closed doors? Because sometimes when, we, when the door is cracked open a little bit and we get a glimpse, it's horrific. Um, I, I'm sure that I shared this story some time ago, but when I was a kid in junior high school youth group, just getting ready to go into high school, uh, a girl in our youth group got pregnant and I came to learn years later that it actually was someone else in the in the youth group that got her pregnant. Um, but when she told the truth about that to her parents, and her parents went to the pastor and asked for advice on what to do, she was made to confess her sin to the congregation and then leave the church and uh, was actually expelled from the church just for being pregnant out of wedlock. Um, mm. She also went on to have an abortion uh, in, in another instance. But the the reality is the guy who got her pregnant got off scot-free. Her life was forever altered. Mm-hmm. She tried to cope with that, deal with that for the rest of her life. But all, all for what? To save the name of the ministry? To save the name of the church? It's, it's wrong. And John, thank you for bringing it up because we absolutely have to address that. And by the way, um, we can pat ourselves on the back all we want for all of the gains that have been made in pro-life ministry over the years. And thank God, some incredible gains have yes. been made. And thank God for yes. groups like 40 Days for Life. Amen. Abby Johnson and all the things that she's doing right now. You know, I mean, just unbelievable what God has allowed to be accomplished. But on the other hand, I drive home every day past an abortion clinic on Main Street in Buffalo, New York. And as I pass it, there's Catholic people standing outside. Thank God for them holding signs. Yes. Yes. saying abortion kills children and offering sidewalk counseling. Where's the evangelical church? Why is How many evangelical churches have a crisis pregnancy center in their budget? How many people listening right now support a pregnancy care center, stand outside clinics and pray? we got a lot of work to do. And John, thank you for talking about the elephant in the room because it needed to be discussed. Yeah, it's a very good point. Very good point. Uh, we have, I mean, I don't know what to add to that, really, because that's such a such an excellent point to be brought out that, yes, in the church, we have to do a better job, and we have to stop eating our own and taking such a fair, you know, selective judgmentalism, if you will. Yeah, I mean, as Christians, guys, we all want Roe v. Wade to end, but to Neil's point, 
how many are participating in what Neil just talked about a moment ago, or on top of that, you know, how many women throughout the, the course of, of even the last 50 years in the church have been affected by the things that that Neil just said, and you know, I've got personal experience along those lines. I have a half brother running around somewhere that I've never met because my mom was one of the people that we're talking about mm. yeah. that had to give a baby up for adoption to stay in the church. Ugh, it's inexcusable. That is just inexcusable. So you know what? Maybe, maybe this is something that we, uh, by discussing this, getting this out in the open, that we, that we learn from, and maybe put a little bit of pressure on churches to, hey, you know what? Knock that nonsense off. Okay, we either uh, walk in the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, or we don't. But when you, when you have this scarlet letter attitude toward women that made the right decision to let their baby live. But now their their sin of premarital sex or whatever has now been exposed as her stomach gets bigger. My goodness, we are yeah. just teaching them, hey, make the wrong decision so that you can keep it a secret. No, the church ought to be a safe place to come and say, you know something, I'm a sinner and I sinned and I messed up, but you know what, I, I want to make the right decision going forward. Uh, you know, I've always said this to my boys, I don't care what you do wrong. What I care is about how you respond to what you yeah, did wrong. Amen. And, amen. and that's, how, that's how the Lord looks at it as well. What we're doing is we're conditioning women to respond the wrong yeah. way yeah. Uh, by compounding sin with an even greater and, and more impactful sin. So I, uh, no, and for, I and guys, unfortunately for me, I had a mother that didn't let all of that affect her spirituality and her love of God. And I'm here today because of mm. that. Mm. Amen. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. That's great. That's great. Uh, all right. My goodness. Uh, what a note to, uh, what a note to finish this on. Uh, there uh, maybe in our last uh, couple of minutes here, as we kind of bring it back full circle, the reason we've been talking about abortion is because the Supreme Court uh, today, as we record this episode on Wednesday morning, they are hearing oral arguments on the Mississippi law that would ban that bans abortion after 15 weeks, and if they uphold the Mississippi law, that will in effect overturn Roe v. Wade. So. Uh, We've talked about a lot of issues here, the, the, the emotional and, and psychological and the biblical and everything else. Uh, so let's kind of close this out, guys, full circle back where we started it in talking about the Supreme Court, what they're going to do in this case. I, I know none of us are, are court watchers. We're not legal experts per se. It's hard to, to say what's going to happen. But I will say this. Uh, when I see news reports say, oh, you've got a 6-3 to three conservative Supreme Court, I don't see a 6-3 to three conservative. I see three hardcore liberals, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Stephen Breyer. We know where they're going to rule. Okay. John Roberts lately has become a quasi-liberal, so uh, I'd be surprised, actually, if John Roberts voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. He seems to be a strong precedent kind of guy. Uh Neil Gorsuch, I think, is going to be solid. I think Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas will be solid. So it seems to me we probably have three overturn Roe v. Wade votes in the bank and three uphold Roe v. Wade votes in the bank. John Roberts, I'm going to predict, sides with the liberals. I think it comes down to Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. One of those two have to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I just don't think that that is a given. So I, I, I just I really don't know what's going to happen in the Supreme Court. But I would not be surprised. I don't want to sound like a Debbie Downer, but I wouldn't be surprised if the Mississippi law wasn't struck down and Roe v. Wade upheld in a five to four ruling because John Roberts joined the liberals and either either Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett caved and went with the liberals and took what they considered to be the safe way out. I hope I'm proven wrong, but I don't think that this thing is is in the bank by any stretch. Any thoughts, anybody? Agreed. I, I would love to say that Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh would go and do the right thing, quote unquote. I don't think it's a guarantee. 
Um, I think that the, the I agree with you that the, the ones that we can count on are the ones that we can count on. Alito, Thomas. I mean, Roberts has shown himself to be who he is. You know, I mean, and, and that's mm -hmm. uh, basically he's owned by somebody on the left. And the fact that he, I mean, literally when you talk about changing the Affordable Care Act ruling, oh, I know. I, I felt like, it felt like a Monty Python sketch. I mean, it was the old, you know, the fish license and the bird thing, and he'd scribbled things out in crayon. I mean, it was it was that much of a surprise to anybody. Um, I don't know that. Uh, you can count on him for anything. So I think we've got three in the bank, and the other two are wild cards, and we'll see what happens. But I'm not, I, I'm not overly optimistic. Yeah, which, by the way, Roger, I, I, uh, I've been watching as, as we're talking, I'm watching some of the, the up-to-the-minute updates on what kind of questions the justices are asking. And no real surprise, the liberal justices are grilling the daylights out of the Mississippi pro-life attorneys. And the, uh, you know, you've got Sam Alito grilling the daylights out of the pro-abortion attorney. Okay, fine. But John Roberts actually is catching me a little bit by surprise here. On one hand, he grilled the pro-life attorney saying, hey, isn't this going to set precedent where we suddenly don't pay attention to precedent anymore? What kind of slippery slope could this create if we if we uh, undo this precedent? And it's like, okay, there goes John Roberts, a liberal. But then John Roberts turned around and grilled the pro-abortion attorney and said, why isn't 15 weeks enough time to choose whether to abort a baby? I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to uh, say this is about choice, then why can't they make their choice inside of 15 weeks? And he used the uh, he used the the terminology whether to abort a baby. And I thought, okay, I don't know. Could John Roberts actually surprise us all in a positive way? So right, we won't know until next year. Yeah, and real quick, what they could be doing is just saying, you know what, we're just going to kick this back down to the states, let the states decide. We don't feel like this is a situation where the federal government needs to be involved, and frankly, they don't, and that's exactly what needs to happen. We'll see if yeah. it does. You know, I'll tell you what I really hope doesn't happen. i got to bad feeling that this may end up being the case where they don't want to overturn Roe v. Wade, but they also don't want to completely codify it. So they come up with some weird hybrid compromise in between that kind of leaves Roe v. Wade intact, but weakens it a little bit. I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if they didn't end up hashing out some kind of compromise like that. I mean, we'll have to wait and see, I suppose. Uh, it's my hope and prayer completely gets overturned. Uh, all right, we will see. A, a great conversation, everybody. And folks, we always appreciate you listening to us as well. You can listen to past episodes of the National Crawford Roundtable podcast as well by going to crawfordmediagroup.net. Uh, you can also go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to your podcast. We welcome your five-star reviews. We always appreciate those. And Neil Boron, Neil Boron Live from Buffalo, New York. Roger Marsh of The Bottom Line from the People's Republic of California. John Rush, Rush to Reason from Denver, Colorado. Myself, Bob Duco from Bob Duco Show in Detroit. Guys, always great catching up with you. Thanks so much. Looking forward to next week. Thank you, Bob. You thanks. You bet. And thanks for listening, everybody. God bless. This has been the National Crawford Roundtable Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Download and subscribe to the National Crawford Roundtable Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. Apple users can rate the podcast, and we'd appreciate your five-star rating. National Crawford Roundtable Podcast returns with a new discussion each week. Be sure to watch for the notification on your podcast app. This has been a Crawford Media Group production.